This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, July 25th, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. Good parenting really isn't all that hard, and the reasons people have kids today really aren't that different from the reasons for having kids a long time ago. All this according to Brian Kaplan, author of the new book, Selfish Reasons to Have Kids. We spoke Friday. How do people think about the prospect of having kids, and how do you think they should think about the prospect of having kids? Good question. I think, you know, especially in modern America, people think that it's pretty much the end of your fun life. It's the time when you have to put aside all of your interests and hobbies, and you're just going to focus on serving these ungrateful additions to your family for the next 18 years or so. And what I say, you know, we should think about it is, uh, of course, there's, there's, you know, there is some sacrifice involved. There is a change in your lifestyle, but it's just a, you know, a, gr- a great chance to enjoy a unique journey with another person um, and, you know, to see how they turn out and just realize that, uh, you know, you know, they are independent people. They're their own people. They're going to do their own things. And the ability of parents to uh, durably change their kids is just greatly overrated. So it just works out a lot better if you just can accept that. Go into some detail about that, the idea that uh, what effect do parents have on on their children? Sure. So, of course, most people assume that parents affect their kids massively in every way. Uh, the main thing that I do in the book is uh, rely upon uh, studies of kids who are adopted and studies of twins, which actually allow us to measure the long-run effect of parents on how kids turn out. Uh, this is you know, really easy to see in the case of adoption because you can see you know kids get adopted by one kind of family versus another, uh, rich family versus not so rich family, religious family versus secular family. How much difference does it make? And the surprising answer that you get out of 40 years worth of research is the effect of parents on how their kids turn, on how their kids turn out is much smaller than most people think in almost every way. Uh, so you know for, for health. Uh, for intelligence, for happiness, for educational success, for income success, for character, for, you know, for values even. Uh, you know, really, the, you know, the most meaningful effect that parents have on their kids is just on uh, how their kids feel about and remember them, the quality of the relationship. So, I mean, what's, what's, uh, what's kind of sad when you, when you take a look at the, at the evidence is there's a lot of parents who play the bad guy and ride their kids really hard in order to ensure them a life of success. The evidence says that they probably don't actually increase their kids' success noticeably, but they often will uh, you know, sour the relationship and uh, seem like an ogre to their kids, and maybe their kids use a Darth Vader ringtone on their cell phone for their parents when they grow up. So I think it's better to avoid that. So you're talking about essentially the tiger mom. Oh, yes, yes. You know, tiger mom came along totally fortuitously for me, but I did have a chance to debate her in uh, the UK Guardian. So, I mean, essentially, I mean, she, write, she writes a book about how incredibly successful her kids are and attributes it all to the strict parenting style that she adopts, never mentioning two things. First of all, both she and her husband are Yale Law professors and best-selling authors, so perhaps her, her daughters had some slight genetic advantage or maybe an enormous, overwhelming genetic advantage. But you know, even more interestingly, her husband was raised in a completely lackadaisical, progressive style, and just like Amy Shua, is a Yale Law professor and best-selling author. One of the points that you make in your book is that parenting is not as hard as people think it is. And I, mm-hmm. I think that just goes against what a, a lot of people's experience would tell them. Right. Well, I mean, what a lot of people are doing is in their minds for the sake of their kids' future. And what I'm saying is adoption twin evidence shows us that these future effects that you are suffering in order to realize probably aren't going to happen at all. So you can focus on enjoying today, making today's experience good. And then, and then you know, in the book, I you know, try to point out a lot of different ways that parents can improve, can improve their experience guilt-free because you're not, really, you're not hurting your kids. So I, mean, I talk about you know, just, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of kids who are involved in activities that they don't like and their parents force them to do, even though it is a struggle every time they go. 
And I said, look, if it's that, that kind of activity, just just stop it. You don't have to do it. Your kid is not going to be a loser because he didn't play soccer, and you let and you let him stay home and play video games instead. Uh, you know, the the evidence is fine. You know, there's very little on that front. Um, in terms of like the single most practical piece of advice, uh, that, you know, that is easiest to adopt, is I know many parents who lose several years years worth of sleep per child they have. And uh, there's actually a very simple, experimentally tested way that you can get your kids to sleep through the night. It's called the Ferber method. Uh, basically, this means that you let your kids cry in their crib for five or ten minutes if they don't go to sleep, and then if they if it continues, briefly comfort them. Don't pick them up, and then stop and leave the room and let them cry for five or ten minutes more before you comfort them again and repeat. And you know, you know, experimentally tested to show that even on kids with big sleep problems, this works. This works. This works wonders. So, I mean, basically, you can cut down lost sleep per child from three years to three months. Uh, that's, that's a huge gain. So, you know, a lot of what I do in the book is saying, look, it's not that you can totally change the parenting experience. You know, diapers still have to be changed and, you know, teenagers are still surly and so on. But there's so many different adjustments that you can make to make the, you know, to tone down the aspects of parenting that aren't fun and which you know, free up a lot more room to do things that you really enjoy, you know, for, you know, finding hobbies and interests that you share with your children, just watching them be happy. Uh, it's, you know, it's a lot more fun to watch your kid do something he enjoys than to be the bad guy and say, I'm going to stand over you with a ruler while you learn piano. In uh, relationships, uh, married uh, couples, in deciding whether or not to have one child, two children, or several, uh, how does that opinion typically break down between men and women? Uh, that's a great question. So the answer is, on average, there is near universal agreement, and not just in the United States, but in almost any country that's ever been surveyed. Uh, there is a popular stereotype that this is a gendered issue and that men are pushing kids on women and women don't want them. That's totally false. Uh, you know, you know there's there a high level of agreement at the aggregate level. Of course, within, within families, there's often disagreement. But on average, women are about, are about as likely as men uh, to argue that, they sh- that the family should have more kids rather than fewer. There is also one sense in which women do want, you know, want, want kids more than men. While they, they want the same number, but women are much more likely to experience what's called baby fever, where they have a craving or a yearning or a longing to have children, which is rarely felt by men. So, I mean, there, there is a sense in which, if anything, uh, you know, pressure to keep family size small is, uh, is a bigger burden on women rather than, the, you know, you know, rather than the opposite. China one-child policy uh, was kind of brought home to me when you realize that means no aunts and no uncles, and that fundamentally alters how families uh, evolve. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, the China's one-child policy is one of the most barbarous violations of human rights uh, left on earth, I would say. And and very and again, you know, like many people want to somehow say, well, this is this is why they had all this great growth and so on. And you can take a look at another at, at the other, you know, Chinese, at the other ethnic Chinese nations in the area that were not communist, that did not have the one-child policy, and they did, and they they did, you know, they they also got, you know, like you know, China, you know like r- roughly roughly Chinese level growth, you know, like Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong. Um, you, know, you know, the other thing is that the brutality is, 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 is you know, even pointless because it looks like ethnic Chinese countries, just in the process of development, go down to low birth rates. So, you know, you know, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Singapore all have low birth rates without government policy to try to, try to express family size. So not only is, China, is, is China's policy, you know, barbar- barbarous and inhumane, but they're also basically, you know, persecuting people for something that would have happened all on its own in the process of development anyway. You say it's a barbarous policy, but it's one that a lot of Americans are perhaps amenable to. That is the idea that... Uh, population growth uh, should be limited and your selfish enjoyment of additional children is not worth uh, social costs. See, I have not seen this, uh, seen any good public opinion data for Americans. I'm willing to believe that Americans think that the one-child policy is good for China. 
I think it's extremely unlikely that Americans have any sympathy for compulsory birth con- for compulsory birth control of any kind. In recent decades, yes. it has been popular, this idea yes. of reducing population growth. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's a big difference between wanting to reduce population and actually passing a law saying you can only have one child, sure. which, you know, the world of difference. I mean, what China has done is so much worse than what almost any other country has done in, on, on this front. Yeah, I mean I, do, I mean, I do agree that at least a lot of Americans are worried about overpopulation. Uh, actually, so you know, one of the main inspirations for this book was the uh, work of economist Julian Simon, who should be well known to uh, fans of Cato. Uh, so you know, basically what he did in the 70s is just went through an enormous amount of empirical evidence on what are the effects of population on living standards in society. And his conclusion was population is actually good. Population growth is good. Uh, so, you know, so, so when you see that people are having more kids, uh, you know, it's not just that they are doing something they enjoy. They're actually making the world a better place. Um, you know, basically, you know, Simon had two main angles here. First of all, he just debunked, de- uh, he just debunked the myth of, resor- of increasing resource scarcity, showed that food, fuel, and minerals have been getting cheaper for you know, over 100 years, and, and despite rising population. So the idea that we're running out of stuff as a result of excessive population just is not true. Uh, again, of course, prices bounce, allow- bounce around from time to time, and that every time there's a spike, people then say, ah, now, 150 years of progress has ended. Uh, but the, uh, the deeper point that he makes is that you know, if you, you know, really look at what's going on with economic growth, it's not primarily about, uh, you know, about, la- about labor or about machines. It's primarily about ideas. The main difference in the modern world and the world of 200 years ago is that we know more than people knew, you know, the, know more than people knew 200 years ago. That is to what we owe the modern world. And I say you know, it's this point that, uh, that, that knowledge is the key to the modern economy, uh, you know, that Simon uh, you know, you know, pioneered. I think this is now very well accepted. People's decision to have kids is influenced by many things. Uh, family size, historically, was, uh, uh, we're told, driven a lot largely by necessity. Um, in developed countries, it seems like people have, tend to have fewer children. How does uh, social policy, uh, particularly programs like Social Security, uh, Medicare, and others, how does that impact people's decision to have kids, or does it? I mean, probably slightly. I mean, here's the, I mean, one of the things I learned in writing the book is that our views of, uh, of uh, earlier times where supposedly the elderly were supported by their kids, are, are, is, the view is basically wrong. Okay. Uh, here's the thing is, in earlier times, people died so young, they didn't, they didn't really collect their pensions for very long. I mean, it, again, it's you know, just a you know, basic fact. You know, back, back when most people died at 65, they pretty much worked till the end and then died. So you know, I found is when anthropologists have actually studied hunter-gatherer societies, they found that uh, the elderly basically produce more calories they consume almost until the end of life, right? And in uh, agricultural societies, uh, you know, the return that you get on investing in your kids is uh, way smaller than you get by just buying land. So pretty much all throughout all of human history, kids have been consum- a bit, kids have been a consumption good. It's not really it's not really that it's about uh, getting help on the farm because it's just you get a better deal if you hire a farm worker for money than if you, you know, have a kid and then feed him for many years when he's not productive and then ride him really hard to do a trivial amount of work. So I mean, like, I mean, basically, our whole picture of why people are having kids in earlier times is wrong. I mean, pretty much in earlier times, people are a lot more like us than we realize. Kids have always been about a consumption benefit. It's about a desire to achieve some kind of immortality. It's about a desire to give love to uh, you know someone who's a part of you. So I mean, uh, I mean, in terms of you know like retirement systems, there may be some slight effect, but you know, you know just pro- probably not that much. Because here's the thing: is you know, right now, you know, in the United States, when people uh, you know are elderly, what do they do? They give money to their kids. Like almost all intergenerational transfers go, even today, go from old to young. There might be a slight change in this if uh, people are responsible for loan retirements, but I, I don't think it'd really be very much, actually. A friend of mine used to tell me, uh, jokingly, takes all kinds, 
but we don't need any more of your kind. <laughs> and it seems like you are a libertarian, and many of your fans, people would be, who would be likely to read a book like this, are also libertarians. Are you saying... We need more libertarians. Uh, yeah, we definitely need more libertarians. Uh, of course, I'm enough of a Julian Simon fan to say hooray for almost everyone being born. But uh, it wouldn't be honest if I didn't if I, if I denied that I give it an, an especially big hooray when libertarians have more kids. Uh, so you know, like one of the things I talk about in the book is there's very good evidence that political views are in, are are heritable, which means that even if you just donate sperm, there is a considerably greater likelihood that the child that comes from that will grow up to be a libertarian. And also, I think that you know, the, like the arguments that I'm giving are the kinds that libertarians in general find uh, easier to swallow than most people. So, like one thing I'm saying is, in you know, in, intentions don't equal results in parenting as in many other areas. So, just because you think that you're riding your kid really hard in order to get the result of making him a successful adult doesn't mean it's working. You actually need to verify whether it's working. You can't just say, "I'm trying hard, therefore I'm going to succeed." Right? And I think all you know, libertarians are also you know already more open to the idea that more people are good for the world. I think they've got less guilt inside of them to begin with on this matter. So to actually say that not only are you doing a good thing for the world, but you can make this just a more fun, more pleasant experience than, than other people assume it has to be. Uh, you know, this, this is this message that is true. And if it is true, I'd be especially like, especially like libertarians to hear it. Brian Kaplan is author of the new book, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. You can watch a Cato forum for the book at our website, cato.org.